Hey everyone, welcome to episode four of the Full Stack Radio podcast, where we talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and design to unit testing and system administration. Uh, I'm Adam Wadham, as always, and my guest today is Alex Bilby. How's it going, man? Hey, I'm really good. Thank you very much. Yourself? I'm doing great. So I know of you, at least in the PHP community, as the guy who wrote the OAuth 2 server, and I guess you're working on an OAuth book as well? Yeah, so I've been working with OAuth 2 for... A couple of years now, and I think it'd be fair of me to say that I wrote the first OAuth um, server in PHP. Um, there's a couple of different implementations now, but I think I wrote the first one. It was originally a Code Igniter um, library, yep. and then over the years that got turned into a framework agnostic library, which um, moved into the PHP League branding, and. Yeah, I'm well known for just being involved with OAuth and, and knowing a lot about the standard. And yeah, I, I decided at the beginning of this year after helping a couple of friends write their technical books and just edit them for them that I'd have a go myself because I've got so many blog posts about the topic that why not make a why not make a book out of it? Yeah, for sure. How did you kind of get started with the OAuth stuff? Like, what made you dive mm. so deep into it? So a few years ago, I used to work for the University of Lincoln here in England, and I was building an API which required um, some authentication. And I think it was around the same time that Facebook first launched their Graph API, and it was locked down using, I think it was Draft 5 of the newly released OAuth 2 standards. And I guess I got first interest in that because I I just happened to be also looking at some, uh, I was doing a, a research project looking at identity or digital identity, specifically around the way we onboard students into the university and how we mint them a new identifier, so a new email address, a new identifying number to represent them when a lot of these students would be coming to the university with a digital identity already. So I was already doing some work around integrating Facebook identifiers with uh, university identifiers. And as I said, yeah, the, they just released uh, th- this new graph API. It was secured with OAuth. And I guess I just got reading it from there. Um, and then we, the, the original API that we built at the university was uh, just having to be written in Code Igniter, um, that, that PHP framework we all love to hate, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was amazing a few years ago, but now we hate it. So yeah, I, I started writing a, um, a OAuth server for it uh, as, a, as a code igniter library, which I released, and over the years it just it just became more and more spec compliant. Awesome. So with the OAuth stuff, like I feel like a lot of people first get introduced to it when they're trying to do stuff like like social login and stuff like that. Like if you want to do like a sign in with Twitter or a sign in with Facebook sort of thing. But as I've been kind of getting into it a little bit more for some of my own stuff and implementing my own APIs rather than. Uh, mostly understanding the spec from the consumer side, uh, it's interesting to see that there's a you know a lot of other different types of grants and stuff that you can use with it besides just the whole redirect uh, authorization code flow that most people are used to when they're only consuming an existing OAuth API. Um, so I was hoping maybe we could kind of chat a little bit about what what those different grant types are. Sure. So I guess fundamentally it comes down to. We, we have to, I guess we have to define what OAuth is. And the OAuth web or OAuth.org describes OAuth as a, an open protocol to allow secure API authorization in a simple and standard method from desktop and web applications. And so the OAuth, the OAuth spec defines uh, four different ways of acquiring authorization. 
the simplest of them to understand is something they call the client credentials grant. So a client in OAuth terms is your is your application, be that a website or you know a, a desktop Twitter application. And an OAuth server, so this could be, for example, be Facebook's OAuth server, will grant um, an application a set of identifiers, which in simple terms are essentially username and password or um, an ID in a secret. And so the client credentials grant is simply a way of uh, the client saying to an OAuth server that I am Alex's Facebook client and here's my password or my token. And in, and in turn, the authorization server, the OAuth server will return with an access token. And that access token can then be used to um, authenticate against the API. It represents the, the authorization. So, so that, that's the simplest uh, way of working with OAuth. It's just simply a case of saying client ID, client secrets, um, and then also you, you specify which grant you're using, which in this case is called client credentials. Yeah. And it's just a simple uh, exchange of authorization credentials. So in, a, in the case of the client credentials grant, then your server that your users are accessing has its own set of credentials to talk to the API server, right? Like I'm understanding it correctly. Yeah. Yes. So, 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 th- so this grant is like, it's quite suitable. It, it, it's most suitable for uh, like machine to machine authentication. So for example, you might have a database which requires daily maintenance uh, in terms of, you know, you might be cleaning up old sessions that are stored in the database. Um, and so you, your cron job that you've got, um, in order to clean up the sessions in the database, you do that via an API. And so your cron job will authenticate with the, with the API, uh, with the auth- authorization server. Um, the cron job has its own credentials and you, and it will authenticate with the API. And then using that access token, it can then go and perform its, its duties. Um, so, so that, that's the best use of the, of the client credentials. So, machine to machine authentication. So, it wouldn't be useful um, if you had users that were using your site and your site needed to make requests to another API. It couldn't really do anything like on behalf of your users because they aren't actually providing you, um, you know, access to their own resources that might be stored on the API server. You only have access to the stuff that your ser- other server, which is the client, has been given permission to, right? Exactly. So, um, so one example where, you, so you can actually use like a hybrid approach. So it might be that when a, let's, let's say you've got a Facebook app that downloads, um, and, and f- in this scenario, Facebook supports a client credentials task. It might be that the, the client, when it first is installed or during its installation process on the, on the user's computer, it, it needs to authenticate with Facebook itself in order to, um, download the, the Facebook logo let's say so it can render it inside the inside the application um so so in in this case the application has got its own purposes uh, its own purpose to use um uh oauth and then uh, and then obviously when the user signs in and that's that's when you'll go ahead and get the um uh, you'll make use of the user's permission so 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 going the next step down from the client credentials you've got something the spec calls the resource owner password credentials grant which is a bit of a mouthful but is, is most commonly known as just a password grant and essentially this is um again you're you're saying to the OAuth server um here are my client id here's my client id and my client secret um but in this case also here's the the user's username and password and so what the OAuth server is now going to do is it's first going to obviously verify that the client credentials are correct and if it is, then it will go on to uh, check that the the user's authentication credentials are correct as well, and then respond with an access token. 
and again, so this, this this grant is best used for trusted clients. So it might be Facebook's own app would only it would never allow um, a third party app to use this grant because the whole purpose of OAuth when using it with users is that you you're not giving your username and password to a third party, but you should implicitly trust your own app. Um, so therefore, it's best used for yeah, as I said, the, the first party trusted clients. Um, so Facebook or Spotify's own iOS apps, for example. Yeah, something where the user wouldn't feel awkward putting in their username and password because it's still, you know, the same company, the same brand. It's like all part of that same ecosystem. Exactly, exactly. So in the case of that flow, is that just like a single request, like versus the sort of three-legged flow that people are used to with like... Um, yeah, exactly. So the, yes, exactly. So so people often talk about OAuth in terms of um, legged approaches, which is quite a strange term. But yeah, so both the, the both the client credentials and the resource owner uh, password credentials grants are um, examples of one legged. So you're just saying it, so it's basically a single request. Here, here's some credentials, and in response, here's an access token. Okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, so I guess from here, you then go down to the, the authorization code grant, which is the grant that most people are familiar with when they think about OAuth. So if you've ever signed into um, a, a third-party website using your Facebook or Google or GitHub or whatever account, then you'll have experience using this grant. Um, and this is the grant that's most uh, commonly adopted by you know the big identity services. And this is whereby... Um, so today I was at work, I was setting up a Jenkins server and in order to lock down this Jenkins server, I'm requiring the developers who I work with to sign in with their GitHub account. So I went to GitHub, I set up a new application and I gave GitHub the URL that when the user is forwarded onto GitHub, they will be bounced back to. So with that information and the client ID and the client secret that uh, GitHub gave me, when I now sign into Jenkins, I get forwarded onto GitHub and I sign in with GitHub. I approve Jenkins to use my account and then I get redirected back to Jenkins to a special URL. And in that URL, in the query string, there is a code parameter and that's known as an authorization code. And what will happen is Jenkins will take that authorization code and then in the background, so in a post request um, behind the scenes, uh, Jenkins will combine the authorization code with its own client ID and secret and exchange that for an access token. And that's known as three-legged OAuth. Yeah, that's the one that I guess most people are familiar with. And then I guess there's the implicit grant. Yeah, so the implicit grant is the fourth um, grant defined in the spec. And that is very similar to the authorization code grant, except for instead of being returned to Jenkins in this case with an access, uh, sorry, with an authorization code, instead you're returned directly with an access token. And the intention of this grant is to be used by clients where they can't protect their secret because you're only working in, in front-end code. So it might be like a single-page JavaScript web app. I've written quite extensively about uh, my problems with the implicit grants and how I, I don't think it's a very secure implementation of OAuth. And it's actually bitten people like Facebook a couple of times over the years um, the, the few big OAuth security problems or issues that have been found over the years have all been uh, because of this grant and the way that it's just defined. It's not a secure implementation because in so many ways you can't verify, um, the identity service can't verify where the user's coming from. And then there's many opportunities for man-in-the-middle attacks and also 
stealing the access token when the user is redirected back from the identity service to the application. So uh, my PHP authorization server that you mentioned before, I don't actually support this natively. Many people keep asking me for it. And what I might do is release a separate composer package for those who really want it with a big warning in the readme. But but it's, it's very difficult to create a a secure implementation of the implicit grounds. And I, I think there's other problems with it as well. So um, the, the problem is, assuming you've, you have somehow implemented it securely, that access token that's been returned in the URL is now, it's essentially public knowledge. It, it was returned in the URL in a, in, you know, in a query hash. And, you know, there could be an XSS vulnerability on your website that allows um, some malicious code to go and uh, access it. Or even the user could, you know, just dig into, you know, open the Chrome console and find wherever it's being stored in a cookie or a local storage. And what that means is because they've now got the access token and because you're you're talking to the API, it must be publicly available if it's a JavaScript app. You lose control of your own API because there's nothing stopping now someone going and making you know a command line tool to interact with your service. Or so for example, a bank would never want to implement this because they only want you to use their approved tools to access your money, which, okay, as developers, we all hate that because we all want to manage our own money. You know, we're all smart enough to do that. But the bank has security requirements and they can't let third-party systems access or integrate with their systems. What you could do is you could reduce functionality that's available to that access token. Um, so, for example, access tokens that have been granted with the implicit grants would have limited functionality, so read-only uh, functionality, for example. But then I think you're creating a poor user experience because you're purposely crippling your own app or your own service. So I don't know why you'd want to do that. Um, and, it, and it, you know, and if you are implementing the implicit grant with your own service, then why not just you, you know, inherently you should be trusting that service. So why not just use the um, user password credentials grants instead? So I guess like the big difference, like kind of what you touched on there is if you're using like the authorization code grant, then the access token that gets kicked back from the API server is only ever picked up by your server and never given back to the user. So the user never sees the access token and can never manually make requests with it themselves, right? Yes. So something that I've always kind of been trying to understand better is what's the difference really between giving back the user their own access token and giving them back um, an encrypted cookie that contains their session ID that then gets forwarded onto the server where the server has the access token. Isn't the the vulnerability for someone being able to like sniff out that access token that or be able to use that access token manually, isn't it basically just like the same as a session hijacking attack? Like, can't you kind of look at it the same way? I, I feel like I'm missing something. So that's kind of one of the questions that I have for you is hopefully maybe you can help me understand what the difference is there. Uh, so the thing is, you're actually right. That is exactly the problem. There, there is some irony here because one of the nice things about OAuth is it defines in the specification that the the identity service, or sorry, the, the, the client that's connecting to the identity service is specifically asking for a set of permissions. So for example, if you're building an app that connects with Facebook, you might be asking to access their basic personal details and their photos. And when you get to the identity service, you've signed in with Facebook and now you're presented a screen saying, Alex Bilby's Facebook photo app uh, would like to access your basic details and your photos. And you either click approve or deny. So one of the nice things about OAuth is, is it gets the user involved 
in the, they, they, they have a say whether or not this third party service is going to access their data or not. So in some way, you're implicitly trusting the user to make that conscious decision. But then you're also saying, okay, well, you've given us that permission and this access token represents your permission that you've granted to this client to access their personal data. You're then going to hide it away behind a server or a proxy or, um, or an, an encrypted cookie. So the, the, I think there is some irony there that you're hiding this approval that the user's given. But I think it goes back to the control question or the control scenario. If, you, if you've got a, an API that allows a user to perform some sort of destructive process, whether that's transferring money from their account to another account or um, deleting their documents that are in the cloud, I think from, fundamentally as an API owner, unless you're specifically creating a an open API, you want to have control over how that's being accessed. So, so yes, you are completely right. You could store the access token in an encrypted cookie, and then uh, that in cookie could just be um, grabbed out the user's cookie jar and then, you know, used in a curl request. But there are techniques such as um, cross-site request forgery uh, protection you can implement um, and also setting certain flags on the cookie itself, such as HTTP only, um, and using it only over SSL or HTTPS um, to try and limit that. But then, if you you know if you implement, I, I got I was talking to someone the other day who uh, who took issue with that and said that you know if you're if you're implementing uh, CSRF protection and you've got an AJAX uh, app or. Uh, um, uh, what's the word? Sorry, a single page JavaScript app. You might be making many asynchronous requests, and so CSRF doesn't work as well because you might be literally issuing five requests at exactly the same time, and so four of those requests will fail because the first one that gets there would use up the CSRF token. So, uh, my only solution then was that I could come up with the t- at the time was maybe well instead of using a single CSRF token, you issue a hundred tokens which can be used once and therefore you've almost got like a pool of tokens that are valid for a certain time but then i think at that point you're just you're just creating you know security uh, through obscurity and you're making an overly engineered complex situation so i guess fundamentally it comes down to how you want your api to be accessed do you want it to be accessed by your only approved apps or do you actually really wanted just an open API that anyone could connect to and you don't really mind as long as you know who's connecting and um, which users have authorized which applications. I wonder if it would help if we like thought of like an an example that we could kind of talk about this stuff in terms of like I almost think maybe GitHub is like a, a good example. If you think of their API that allows, I don't know if their API actually allows you to like delete repos and, and stuff like that. It, it does if you grant it. The, this is the thing. Uh, you, with OAuth, you can you can grant specific permissions, and I, I certainly with GitHub. Uh, only I only know because I was I was looking at it earlier when I was setting up Jenkins. Yes, you can you can perform these destructive actions. Okay, so maybe that's like a good example to kind of keep in the back of our minds as we kind of talk about some of this stuff. So I guess in terms of the implicit grant, what you're saying is. If if you wanted to use the implicit grant, um, you would never want to use it in a way that allowed someone to delete a repo or delete a pull request or, or anything that actually affects this, the state of your account on the GitHub API side, right? Because of the fact that it's vulnerable to some of these attacks and that this token can kind of be used from anywhere and there's no way to verify the identity of the server that's sending 
that's making these requests to the API if he used an implicit grant. Exactly, and that's and that's one of the, the arguments against that, that that people have against OAuth in that once you've got this access token, this or uh, it's officially known as a bearer token. Once you've got this bearer token, this access token, there's no way in in the official standard for the um for the client using this access token to prove that they are the ones who should actually have access to it. So this was solved in OAuth 1, uh, which Twitter still uses, and I think Yahoo uses it as well. This was solved because um, in the request itself, it had a it had a signature. So you would combine various um, facts about the request that the server was about to make, so which HTTP method it was using, which uh, endpoint it was hitting, which what was in the query string, um, and other facts. And then you would build a, um, a hash that was encrypted using the client secret, and you send that signature along with the access token, and the authorization server and the API can verify that yes, this access token is being used by someone who should have access to access token. And OAuth two doesn't natively have that. Some of that's mitigated by the fact that the OAuth standard requires all communication goes off over SSL TLS. So things like headers are encrypted and other parameters that are going on with request, request bodies are encrypted as part of the HTTPS connection. And therefore, they're not as easily sniffed out of the request. There is actually an extension grant uh, that has been published by the OAuth standards body as an RFC called the MAC grant. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head what MAC stands for. But basically, the way this grant works is in addition to supplying an access token, in the response to request for an access token, it also supplies a almost like another set of credentials which can only be used for that access token. And so similar to OAuth 1, when you build this signature for each request, when you use that access token, you're going to encrypt the requests, or sorry, build a signature of the request and use that along with the access token to verify that the, the client that has possession of this access token was the um, authorized body who should have received the token because along with the request you've got to use the special credentials that were supplied along with the access token originally so even if you do like an authorization codes type of grants or any of the kind of server to server style grants that aren't the implicit grant any api requests you make only need to include the access token right you don't need to pass along the client secret anymore so if someone were to get a hold of that access token somehow, um, it could still be used from anywhere, right? Yes. So one of the recommendations is that you only issue short-lived access tokens. So I think Facebook's access tokens, um, for example, are only last for one hour. And then what many services now implement is um, a fifth part of the official OAuth 2 standards called refresh tokens. So with refresh tokens, along with an access token, you're issued this refresh token, which the the client stores and doesn't use until the original access token is expired. And then the client can then send a request to the authorization server saying, here's my client ID and my client secret, and also the refresh token. Can I please have a new access token? And essentially this allows a new access token to be issued without the user having to go through the authorization process again. So that makes sense. So that's kind of like, it's basically like you're checking in every once in a while and just reconfirming, yeah, these requests are still coming from the server that has the secret and and all that stuff. Yes, exactly. With refresh tokens, there's a nifty trick you can use them for. Um, that's basically, let's say you've got a, um, a third party that's authorized to connect users' accounts. So it might be a, a financial services company 
who've got an application that's been approved by the HR in your organization to allow users to sign in. If you're issuing access tokens that, let's say, live slightly longer an hour, let's say for a week, the financial services company can request uh, refresh tokens every couple of days. And basically, because the HR system's authorization server will be linked back to the list of users. Obviously, when a user leaves the company, they'll be removed from the HR system. And so at some point, that authorization server will stop issuing new access tokens with a refresh token request. Um, and therefore, the financial services company can assume that that user's left the company. And this was written about by Tim Bray, who um, used to work at Google on their security team. Uh, I think it's quite a clever trick. That it's, it's a way that isn't documented in the old standards but it, it, it's it's a way of using the standard for a particular scenario that that isn't necessarily um the the, the other way of doing it would be uh the financial services company for example requests from an api endpoint a list of users who've left whereas whereas this one it can almost tie it almost tidies up itself on an ongoing basis as opposed to having to get like a revocation list which you then pass through and you know, but but anyway, it, my point is that you can actually use refresh tokens um, for almost business logic. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the thing with the refresh tokens is I've noticed in a lot of APIs that I've uh, implemented stuff to work with, a lot of them actually like don't support this. Like I know GitHub doesn't do refresh tokens. Maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but when I was working with it, I, I couldn't find any way to do refresh tokens. And it seemed like the access tokens were basically just lived indefinitely. As far as I know, yes, that's the case. Um, I know Facebook used them and Google used them as well. I, get, I guess it's just a case of over time, services will support them. GitHub specifically, they, they, they're quite good at versioning their API. So it might be, I think they're on version three at the moment. It might be version support for supports, refresh tokens. Um, but an important note to make is that like um, the client secret or even the access token, in my opinion, the refresh token shouldn't be readily available in front-end code, you know, stored in the browser's local storage, or even in plain text in a cookie. It, it, it's something else that should be hidden away because even if you've got short-lived access tokens, there's nothing stopping, you know, an unauthorized command line tool from just using these refresh tokens to request new access tokens indefinitely. Kind of going back a little bit, we were talking about how um, in the like, server-to-server grants, uh, any of the access token based requests that you make don't need to pass along the secret. I was trying to think like why they wouldn't require the secret, but I guess when you really think about it, if someone has been able to acquire an access token from your server that was you know given some permissions to make some requests on behalf of some user, then you can probably assume that they were able to get your client secret as well too, right? So I guess there's not really any added benefit to passing that information along with every request. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, you could say that. I mean, it's it's likely that you'll be storing your access tokens in a database, for example. But your your client ID and your client secret might be hard coded into your client application. So, it's, so there might be some separation there. I mean, one advantage is is that with OAuth is that you can immediately revoke. Let, let's say you found that um, a third party application was acting nefariously or um, had been hijacked. You can immediately revoke all the access tokens that were issued to that client. You know, once you've built this logic, it's very it's very simple to do. So, so you can you can kind of provide some protection to users in that if a third party client was hacked, at least the hackers can no longer request their data. The other thing I kind of wanted to talk to you about was kind of 
the little personal project that kind of led me down this path of trying to implement this OAuth server myself and understand this stuff more. And I was hoping that maybe you could kind of help me figure out what what some of the issues were with my original implementation and what kind of the best way to go is. Because I've researched a couple other similar situations with other uh, projects and seen a couple different ways of tackling it. So the basic situation is like I have this um, web app and all it really is for is for me to keep track of interesting links that I find on the internet. And uh, I can kind of share them with groups of friends and people can subscribe to these lists and kind of once in a while go and see like a list of articles to read that have kind of been curated by a specific group of people or whatever. So there's a Chrome extension that goes along with it that allows you to kind of just anytime you're on a page, you can just hit this button in the toolbar and easily kind of submit that link. So the original implementation that I had, like, so anytime I need to make a request from the Chrome extension to the web app, uh, it's basically hitting this like little, really simple API that just lets you post these links. And I had implemented just this like hand rolled, really, really basic access token based system where in the Chrome extension, you would enter your username and password. It would be sent over SSL to the server and the server would just generate um, a token and kick it back to you. And you would just make requests with that token. But that sounded too simple and <laughs> I felt like I needed to go down the path of understanding some of these more involved implementations like the OAuth spec to do a kind of a better job at it. Are there any like real disadvantages to that kind of first approach that I took, especially in the case where this extension is like a trusted app, right? Kind of like how we talked about before with the, the password credentials grant that you would get with OAuth. Um, so do you, do you know if um, Google Chrome extensions have got the concept of secure storage? Uh, I don't know if there's a secure one. I mean, I know like the regular local storage is sandboxed like per domain or whatever. So you can't access another website's local storage stuff. But if you're if you have access to the browser, then you can kind of go through and see whatever you want to see. So on the assumption that it doesn't have any sort of secure storage. So so in this case, we can just assume from that that the does the access token you're getting back as well as... Sorry, did, does the, the Chrome extension identify itself with your API with its own ID and secret? No. Um, I mean, I didn't bother with any of that because it seemed like because of the fact that it's an extension, anyone can open the code. So I thought by doing like a password, a username and password sort of approach that... Uh, anyone who typed in their username and password would basically be giving uh, permission to to do any of these actions, right? Is there a, a significant disadvantage to not having like an app ID or something when the server that's receiving the request sees that the person's username and password was entered? Like, is there any reason not to trust that if the correct credentials come in, that it was sent by someone who actually wants you to be able to act on their behalf? With the API, so off the top of my head, I if 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 all you're sending is a username and password to the API, then we with no way of identifying the client. Then I guess that means that the anyone could do that. I could do it. I could sit here and do it from with curl on the command line. So what you could do is even though it doesn't actually mean anything because essentially the client ID, any, any anything that's basically in a Chrome extension is public. Therefore, you could issue, you could issue short-term access tokens and use refresh tokens, which I get. So if you gave, if you gave the Chrome extension a client ID and secrets, even though they're public, 
because uh, as I understand it, Chrome extensions, whenever you release a new version, they update automatically in the background. You, you could just periodically release a new API application with a new set of credentials, um, revoke the old set of credentials, because then at least you can reduce to some extent the amount of spam. I mean, I guess I guess with something like this, you need to ensure that your API, uh, well, you're going to have to have some sort of spam filtering. So, you know, if someone starts slamming it, you know, I definitely rate limit the API so that someone can't, you know, someone, someone basically anyone could build an interface to your to your API. So, I, I definitely I definitely rate limit it. So rate limited like per access token. Well, I, you could use another. You could use the IP address as well as the access token. Um, although, because you're not actually doing OAuth, I guess this is more like um, almost like API keys. You're 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 just exchanging your username and password for essentially an API key. I think the thing about OAuth is that OAuth is actually a framework. It's it's a standard, but it's also a framework. It's built to be extensible. But no, I, I guess I guess I, I don't think OAuth can necessarily solve. Any issues you might face, I think it's more to do with the API. So, so things like rate limiting, also, you know, watching out for spam. Um, I, I think the prob- those sort of issues you're actually going to have to solve with that that part, not not the OAuth side of it or the authentication side. So that's kind of what I was wondering, right? Is like, is there a way to use um, something defined in the OAuth spec that works under in this situation uh, that could uh, help me build this API in a more secure way? And I'm struggling to find an answer because it seems like any communication that um, for you to be able to trust it, really, there has to be like some server to server communication involved where you can actually keep a client secret. Because I feel like I'm running into the same problem that you described uh, in the article that you wrote, uh, I guess was a few weeks ago about trying to do, you know, OAuth with single page applications. And uh, you had talked about a solution of basically having like a proxy server in the middle that kept track of, your client ID and client secret. And basically the single page app would have like a, an authenticated session against that server. Right. And you would proxy those requests along and just pass along the, the information or add the access token in and stuff like that. That's, that's basically what you would talk. Yes. About, right? Yes, exactly. That. So, so the proxy server intercepts the, <clears throat> the, ba- the basic requests from the browser and would add in uh, exactly as you said, the, the added um, authentication or authorization bits to the to the api request so in a case like where you have like a chrome extension that wants to make um requests uh directly to some api i mean even if i wanted to put a proxy server in between i don't know that it would make that it would really do anything different right like i would still enter the username and password into the extension it would communicate with the proxy server um, it would somehow have to authenticate and, and start a session with that server. So that server would have to send back some encrypted thing to store in a cookie or something to be able to send back along with future requests from the extension. So the extension knew um, who had logged in and, and what the session was that the requests were being made from and then proxy that to the actual API. I guess I can't really figure out like what the difference between doing that is versus just talking to the API directly and having the API issue you a token based on passing the username and password. And like you said, it sounds like maybe it's just an, an unsolvable problem and you just kind of have to accept the fact that there are more security issues when trying to build something like this that in order to still deliver the user experience that you want you kind of just have to accept i guess yeah i think i think you're right i think it is something you just have to accept i mean at the end of the day your your chrome is like your api isn't implementing anything destructive is it it's just purely adding links 
Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's definitely not like a financial app or anything. Right? Exactly. It's, like, it's trivial stuff. If someone was to get access to it, there's not private data. There's not a uh, anything that you know anyone should really be all that upset about if it got into the wrong hands per se. It, exactly. I mean? So I think with a combination of um, API rate limiting. Um, and IP filtering and such. And also maybe um, on the API side, looking at the URLs that are being entered. Um, so you, you could use something like the gate, I think it's called the Google Safe Browsing um, uh, API, which is basically, it's a massive text file, plain text file that basically ca- contains SHA-1s or SHA-2-5-6s of, um, of unsafe URLs, such as you know pornography or um, uh, phishing URLs. And you can basically hash the URL that the user's entered, or whoever has met, who has en- whoever has entered, uh, and check it against this list. Um, and there's also another service which um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but allows you to do uh, DNS checks to see if they're if they've been reported. Um, uh, so I, I think a, a lot of this comes down to the API. Just implementing security, it, it, the, the API itself um, correctly handling what's being given to it. Um, I mean, the, 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 if you implement the OAuth dance or any sort of OAuth dance, be it one-legged or even three-legged or, or whatever, um, you're 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 adding a barrier to entry for someone for to, for someone to um access your api i mean anyone it, it sounds like it's easy to overcome it but you're adding a barrier there um but also as as we've discussed it's, it's not you know we're not dealing with sensitive information here it's not there's no way of causing anything destructive so i i think it's right that you've you've locked down the api but i don't think you can lock it down anymore and i think that's just something you've got to accept there's, I, I wouldn't mind talking about some of these other approaches that I've seen other people do, and maybe you can kind of tell me what your kind of gut instinct sure, sure. is on those in comparison. So another alternative that I've seen is when uh, someone would log into the actual web app, it would set a cookie that contained an access token for the extension, and it wouldn't have the HTTP uh, only flag set so that the JavaScript would be able to access it. And uh, with Chrome extensions, you can specify the cookie permission and then what domains it should be able to access cookies for. And then when someone installs it, they'll get like a little pop-up saying, you know, this extension is requesting permission to do this. And it'll mention that they want access to cookies on a certain domain. So someone could accept that. And then the extension could read the token out of the cookie that the web app had set and just make requests based on that. So it's kind of a totally different approach, but do you see any real difference in terms of security or does it well seem- you would you wouldn't want to read the token out of the cookie because um you can't do cryptography even in javascript so because in order to do cryptography you'd have to have the cryptographic secrets again in, in, in on, on the, the client side. side exactly so in in that instance you'd almost just want to send the cookie along with the requests in which case i get i, I guess you could use encrypted cookies there um and yeah, I guess that's another option. So instead of, so yeah, the way I was talking about it was basically a plain text cookie would be sent back that contained, um, you know, an access token of sufficient length to be hard to guess. But if someone was able to look at the cookies in your browser, they would have access to it and be able to do whatever. But what you're saying, so you could send back an encrypted cookie 
that contained the session information and then just make requests from the extension, almost masquerading as the actual browser to kind of maybe uh, hang off of the same session that they would be using in the web app or something similar to um, that. Yes, although having I've never written a, a Chrome app before. So if basically your extension, as I think you've just suggested, essentially there's no difference between the extension and the browser making the requests, then yes, I guess. Um, yeah, just use yeah enc- encrypted tokens. The other way of doing it is if your if your API isn't on the same um, domain as your main sites, then uh, a lot of people recommend you use um, Jot tokens or or which is actually spelled J W T, but it's pronounced Jot. Which um, what Jot tokens are? It stands for JSON Web Token, and basically it's a JSON object that contains information about the session, as it were. So it could be the user ID and the the access token, for example. And then that JSON object is Base64 encoded. And then that Base64 encoded string is prefixed by another Base64 JSON encoded object, which basically says it's a JSON object or it's a JWT object and also an encryption algorithm. And then there's a suffix string which is a hash of the original JSON object, which is um, encrypted by the, also it's hashed by the uh, the client se- the application client secrets. And then these three strings are concatenated with a full stop. And altogether that's called a JSON web token. And basically you can use JSON web tokens in authorization headers, similarly as you would with a bearer access token in OAuth. But what you can use these for, which you can't use cookies for, is you can make um, cause requests so if your API was on another domain, you can send authorization headers, but you can't send cookie headers. So, so that's another way of doing it instead of using an encrypted cookie. But obviously but the, the thing with JSON, a JSON web token is you wouldn't want to put anything too secret in there just because that middle part, the, the second part of that concatenated string, anyone could just reverse the base64 encoding and just inspect the object. Although they can't change it because then the hash would be different, the final part of that three-part catalytic string yeah the other kind of interesting approach that i saw have you have you used the pocket chrome extension before or pocket the web app oh uh, no I'm, f- I'm familiar with pocket though the way they do it seemed kind of convoluted and like overly complex to me for for no real benefit at the end of the day and it was they basically implemented like a three-legged auth approach using what seems like oauth you open the extension and if uh you haven't basically signed into the extension it gives you a button to say like authorize the chrome extension with your pocket account and that will open a new tab which goes to their like you know their permissions page that you would get with like any uh authorization grant based approach that's saying you know the pocket chrome extension wants to be able to do this um you would hit allow but then instead of redirecting back to the extension because that's impossible because the extension doesn't have a url right it redirects to an endpoint on their own server that's like slash chrome authentication successful or something like that right and there's a background script in the extension that's running that's watching for the url to match that url and once it notices that it's matched that url i guess it pulls um the access token or the authorization code out of the query string and then passes that back to the extension and the extension can make requests on your behalf that way. It just seemed like a lot of ceremony for ultimately just giving the access token to the extension and being, you know, a publicly 
available access token that isn't stored on a server and is instead stored on the client yeah side. it's a pretty crappy user experience and also the, the access token is now is now public i guess you can't just have a short-term access token because then you know an hour later the user would have to go through exactly the same process just to authorize it you know i think pocket would almost be better just to implement the resource owner password credentials grant and just ask the user for the username and password so the only thing that I think stopped them from doing that is they allow a sign-in with your Google account. Right, I see. So, oh, well, well, in that case, yes, they'd have to. They'd have to do that three-legged route. Yeah. Do you think? Um, so here's an approach that I was considering, and this is kind of based on the uh, second approach we talked about, where the web app would would set some sort of cookie that the extension would use to be able to make requests on the user's behalf. Because to me, that feels like the smoothest user experience where as long as you're logged into the web app, the extension will just work. You don't have to like log in separately between the two. You know what I mean? And then whoever's logged into the web app is also logged into the extension. You don't run into a situation where one user might be logged into the web app and one user is logged into the extension and stuff like that. I don't know. Does that make sense? So do you think if I was to implement like an OAuth server... Uh, on the API side, just because maybe it would be convenient to be able to allow access to it for other people who wanted to be able to integrate with it in some way. Um, would it make sense to still make use of the that same token generation process for whatever I kick back to the cookie that the extension is going to use? Like, So they would go to the web app, they would enter their username and password, uh, they would log in, and then I would make use of the OAuth server to basically simulate um, a resource owner credential grant flow and generate a token that I could encrypt in a cookie and and send back and store in the browser so that I wasn't manual so I wasn't keeping track of basically two totally separate things so I didn't have like the access tokens that were generated for the Chrome extension that's like a separate database table and totally separate authentication process and then a standard um, OAuth server situation that's set up to handle requests from third-party apps that want to integrate you know what i mean look what do you think the best way to unify that into kind of one api authentication scenario would be i think as you suggested that that's one route so is your authorization server built into the api server or are they two different systems it's really simple so it's, it's if it's all the same then um you uh, you could almost just fake the requests inside the the website login flow so you could do it that way uh, i have just thought though so have you used instapaper at all uh i have a little bit but i don't use it day to day i've played with it though so i've always used um, instapaper instead of pocket and when i save websites to instapaper using their chrome plugin what it does is it basically injects a little bit of javascript into the web page which captures the url and then just does an ajax request inside that page uh, to pocket and I, because it's um because it's javascript that's coming from the browser um, window the, the yeah the instapaper it's coming from the instapaper website it just uses the whatever cookie i've got for instapaper um and the way they get around that for so, so obviously some websites um so anything that influences ssl because you don't want mixed mixed content warnings or or any website that uses some of the new um I think it's called like X frame headers um, or cores where you only allow uh, cookies and resources from certain domains. The way they get around that basically is if it can't, um, sorry, it can't inject the JavaScript. What it does, it just, the extension captures the URL of the currently visible page and just opens a new tab, which then they, which I don't know if it does a post request or if it's included in the query string, but basically it will open a new tab. um, 
insert the, the URL that way and then close the tab when it's done. So if, if I was to make like, anytime I make an Ajax call to any domain, um, the browser will automatically send any cookies that I have for that domain, even if the Ajax call is being made from a different domain? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that actually... It, it might not actually be an Ajax request. It might actually be an A for iframe, which would definitely send the cookies over. Okay. Interesting. So, so that might that might actually be an even easier way than working with a Chrome extension that's trying to manage credentials and access tokens and such. Because then, then you're just using standard built-in browser technologies to manage the session. I don't know if that would totally work because there are some extra bits of information that the extension needs. Like, So when you're submitting a link, you can submit it to one of a number of lists that you might have permission to submit to. So the extension needs to be able to populate a dropdown of those lists and know what like the ID is to submit the the link to on the server. So you might not, I might not be able to actually inject JavaScript on the page and send stuff that way. So what Instapaper does um, is when you click the um, save to Instapaper button, it covers the screen in like a, a, a semi-translucent black yeah. um, popover. And then it has like a little oh. uh, spinning, spinning adding logo. So you could have that list at yeah. that point there. Okay. Or, or if you're doing, or if you're, because you can't inject the JavaScript, you're, um, you're opening up a new tab. You could just, because it's obviously your own site, you could just display the list then and there. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The so again. It's like a different flow. So the way that I have it, right, is like any buttons in the toolbar, you can uh, create like an HTML file that it treats as like the pop-up window that opens in the context of the toolbar where the button is. But I guess what Instapaper does then is it only works in the context of the page. Like it's not opening its own little pop-up window. It's taking over the current browser window and any interaction is happening through there. So it could still make requests to get any information it needs from the server and populate it into the modal window or whatever that it displays. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. I guess there's some... I wonder how they get around, like... They probably just are very specific with their class names and stuff in their CSS to make sure that none of their their styling gets overridden or maybe they use inline styling or something to make sure that the experience is the same no matter what site you're on. I imagine they probably just use inline styling out of ease. Um, yeah, because yeah, you don't you don't want CSS namespace clashes yeah, exactly. or anything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so it's only that that's how Instapaper do it. So it might it might even be worth saving yourself you know, having to build and secure an API and just go down that route instead. Yeah, I'll have to look at that. That could be cool. Yeah, so how is your book coming along? Uh, slowly. So I've had quite a, I've had a really, really busy year. I moved, oh, well, I moved house at the beginning of the year, like shortly. <laughs> it was only a couple of weeks after I uh, announced that I was going to do a book. I, I moved house and that took weeks to move. And then um, I moved job in January, in May, sorry. Um, and then I've had a really, really busy summer. So I, I, I have done some work on it. I'm probably about 60, 60% of the way through. I've never written a book before. And I, I've, I've, kind of, I've kind of taken different approaches to it. And the, the approach that I'm doing at the minute, which seems to be working best for me, is I'm, I've, I've split up the chapters even further. And I'm, almost treated, I'm trying to treat them as blog posts instead of, instead of as just a section of a book. Because I, I think when I see it in the context of the whole book, I'm getting a bit overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. So... I've written about I've written about seven thousand words so far. Okay. So, so the way I'm approaching it is it's a very it's probably going to be a really boring read because it's basically looking at each of the the, or the technical side of the book. It's looking at each of the individual um, Elworth grants and then doing a step by step analysis of what's happening. Um, so 
the request that's being sent and what's happening when the server receives that request. So what checks it should be doing um, and then the response that's being sent back and how the client should handle the response. So you could almost look at it as almost an implementer's um, guide to OAuth. But I think it's the, I think it's the best way of explaining what's going on. So you could just use it as an implementer's draft. Um, but I think it's the easiest way of explaining exactly what's happening. And I'm also trying to put in some information about how others have been caught out. So when I'm obviously when I'm talking about the implicit grant, which as has been evident, is my favorite grant. <laughs> um, I, I you know I, I'm talking about how Facebook have got caught out by that and where the pitfalls they had when implementing that grant and, uh, you know, when they basically how they, they've, they've screwed, screwed up a number of times. Yeah. So, so basically I'm just trying to put each, each grant in context and explain what makes a good user experience for each grant, and also when it's appropriate to use each grant. So as I've said this evening that, you know, for the client credentials grant, it's, it's best, it's most appropriate for machine to machine authentication um, and the resource owner password credentials grants is, is most suitable for trusted clients. So, so I'm also trying to make that distinction. So when, when, it, when it's appropriate to use and how to make a great experience out of that. So that, that's the approach I've taken to the technical side. And then uh, before that, I, I talk about um, a, a brief history of OAuth and OAuth 1 and also some alter- so what came before OAuth. So I'm talking about like basic HTTP auth, digest auth, um, I touch on SAML um, and Kerberos and some other um, authentication pro- uh, protocols that have been developed over the years. And then following on from uh, talking about the, the, the technical side of OAuth 2, uh, I've got a couple of different case studies that just look at um, just look at ways of implementing OAuth in certain situations. So for example, um, I talked about that nifty trick where you can use with refresh tokens <clears throat> to see if a user's been as uh, a user has left an organization um i've also been working with my colleagues to find secure ways of storing access tokens in ios and android clients and you know using the security keychains there i'm also going to go over once again the, the how to do oauth correctly in a single page web application and then i, I i'm debating i, I might I, I don't know if i'm going to have time because i'd really like to get it finished for january but I, I might touch on JOT tokens and some of the other extension grants that have come about since OAuth 2 as a standard has been finalized. Yeah, that's amazing. It sounds like it's basically going to be like the, the OAuth Bible. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of the approach I'm taking with it. As I said, I, I'm trying to make it as verbose as possible to very clearly explain at each stage what's happening and what should be happening and what's being validated and um, what to look out for. Um, just it's a lot of it's from my own experience a lot of it's from reading um, how other people have implemented it and what I dislike about their implementations so for example Foursquare I, I, again this might not be correct now because I've not used Foursquare's API in ages but Foursquare had a really strange implementation of OAuth 2 it, it was very non-standard I mean it was OAuth 2 but it was their own flavor of it and so if you're ever building a, an app that integrated login with several different social networks. Foursquare was always a pain in the ass because it was completely different. Interesting. Have you got a lot of um, interest and stuff like outside of the PHP community? Um, I, I've spoken at a couple of different conferences about OAuth 2, just in, just in general and about, about its use cases and how it can be um, correctly applied. I, I, did a, I did a fair bit of research around it when I, when I worked 
back at the University of Lincoln. So I guess I'm best known for implementing OAuth because of the PHP library, but I have talked in context outside of PHP. That's good. I feel like, um, I mean, if it lives up to the stuff that you've been mentioning here, I think you're going to sell a lot of copies. So I'll definitely be picking one up. What's the best way for like people to get in touch with you to ask you questions or find out what you're up to? Um, so I, I I blog semi-regularly at alexbilby.com. Um, that's A-L-E-X-B-I-L-B-I-E.com. Um, I'm Alex Bilby on Twitter, um, and I'm Alex Bilby on GitHub. Perfect. So show notes for this episode are going to be found at fullstackradio.com slash episode slash four. If you have any feedback, hit me up on Twitter, or if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, that'd be awesome too. Thanks, guys. Catch you next time.